Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. In this third series, we're going slightly off the beaten track. These 10 conversations will take us on a journey from the world of psychedelics, ecological grief and the self, to technobiophilia, leadership and how we might begin to recreate our identity as a species in the face of the unfolding climate crisis. Join me each week as we explore these topics and more. And if you like the show, please do rate or review it as it helps to reach new ears. For additional resources and to find out more, visit natalinahai.com forward slash the hive podcast or tweet to me at natalinahai. I hope you enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm delighted to be speaking with Amanda Scott, a very interesting woman, a best-selling author, columnist and teacher who started off her professional life as a veterinary surgeon specialising in neonatal equine intensive care. At the turn of the millennium, as her early crime novels gave way to the Boudicca Dreaming series, she gave up the day job to write full-time and teach the shamanic dreaming that fed into and then arose from the dreaming books. Four years ago, she became a student again, reading for a Master's in Sustainable Economics at Schumacher College in Devon. And now that we're entering the third decade of the third millennium, she's moving from writing to activism. Last year, she sat on the streets with Extinction Rebellion, canvassed for the Labour Party and worked her socks off for local resilience networks. At the start of this year, she and her partner launched their website, podcast and membership platform, Accidental Gods, which is a gateway to conscious evolution. So the first question, the first question I'd like to ask you is a question that I'm asking everyone, and that's where do you think we're headed as a species? Okay, well, that's very interesting because I've spent the entirety of the last 13 months thinking very hard about that. <laughs> so there's the easy answer and there's the complex answer. So the this more easy answer is that I think we are a hyper-complex system. I think, therefore, we will follow Prigogine's rules of complex systems, which is we will reach a layer of complexity, a level of complexity, beyond which there is a bifurcation of choice. And the one arm goes to chaos and extinction, and the other arm emerges into a new, a new system that is not predictable from the previous system. And so I am putting everything I have into the new system because I don't really like the chaos and extinction option. Mm. Although quite clearly, you know, Daniel Schmachtenberger and everybody else in that media, we are, we are the first generation that has given itself species-level extinction capacity. Mm. And if we continue to be tribal, if we continue with rivalrous behaviour, and we continue to evolve weapons technology, then we will render ourselves extinct without question, regardless of the climate change hmm. and the biodiversity loss and the possibilities of some idiot giving one antibiotic too many and, and creating antibiotic resistance that will pretty much wipe us out, or biological warfare, or any of the other ways. You know, there are, there are several university departments now that are looking quite closely at the many ways that we could wipe ourselves out. Wow. But I also think that we are we are on the knife edge where we could move towards the emergence into a new way of being, a new system. And I think, so my 
preferred route for that is conscious evolution. I think it's possible, um, but I think we need it needs quite a lot of us to work quite hard at it, which I'm guessing is how you got me because I've been talking about this on various forms of social media for the last six weeks or so since Accidental Gods was about to launch. Mm. I'm curious. Um, so I have two questions that I'm I'm thinking of as you're speaking. The first is around your optimism for how likely it is for us to take that second fork, the more um, adaptive, progressive, creative, innovative path. And the second question um, was actually, what's the more complicated, longer story of that answer? So I don't know which you want to go for first. Let's go for the why. So you've seen my bio. I My spiritual practice is shamanic. Mm. And, and the essence of shamanic practice is that we ask for help. And the people who practice well are the ones who can ask for help in a way that yields answers that are not tainted by ego or projection or self-judgment or judgment of others or fear, mm. so that you get clean answers that are coherent, clear and constructive. And I am watching myself and people around the world, the answers that we are getting and the help that we are getting is, is ramping up in ways that, that leave me gobsmacked, frankly. Are you familiar with Gail Bradbrook's story of the starting of Extinction Rebellion, for instance? I, I am, but I'm not sure everyone else is, so if you'd be happy to share, we'd love to hear. <laughs> okay, so, well, it's not my story, and really you need to talk to Gail, but she has shared this in other podcasts, so I think it's, it's out there on the internet, it's okay to share. So she has been an activist for a long time. She was wanting to get something off the ground and was finding it very frustrating. Um, and she... She did a retreat, I'm not going to specify the nature of the retreat, but it was a very intensive retreat, in which she asked for help to find the codes for social change. She came back, and within a very short time of coming back, she was contacted by Roger Hallam, who is an academic, mm. who said, you know, I think we're working in the same area we should meet. And they scheduled an hour, and four hours later, he leaned forward, tapped on her notebook, and said, what I've just given you is the codes for social change. <laughs> And she had not mentioned her retreat to him at all. So she thinks, okay, so, you know, the, the, whatever it is that I am connecting with is, is responding. This is good. She goes back to Stroud, which is a pretty switched on place, and goes, okay, guys, let's make this happen. And they all go, yeah, yeah, Gail, pat her on the head, and nothing happens. And about six months of this goes past, and she goes on a full moon retreat, another one, a, a different kind of retreat, but as intense, asking for help. And that same weekend, one of the big movers and shakers in Stroud was on a different kind of a workshop, which was the first gathering that Jem Bendel had convened oh, wow. after releasing the Deep Adaptation. Yeah. And, and so for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with Deep Adaptation, let's take a slight segue, <laughs> which is um, Jem Bendel is a professor of uh, sustainability at Cumbria University. About 2016, he realized that what they were teaching basically was not adding up anymore. So he gave himself a year's unpaid sabbatical, which I... Kind of think is a good thing. Somebody takes a year off without money because they believe in what they're doing. Tick. And he went back to Cambridge where he'd been an undergraduate and he spoke to all of the climate scientists and he did a lot of very intensive joining of dots and he wrote a 36-page paper. Hmm. And he took it to the sustainability journals and it went through the peer review process and they said, no, 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 we can't publish this because you have not cited anybody else who has come to the same conclusion. And he went, no, that's nobody has. Hmm. So this is a world first. You know, you can publish this world first. And they went you know what, we can't do this. You just can't tell people this. It's, it's not good. Mm. Um, so he published it himself. 
and you can download it now. It is the single most downloaded scientific paper of all time now. And his basic conclusion is that we have between five and ten years before complete societal collapse if we don't act now. Mm. And I read the paper and I wept for a week after it because it is very hard hitting, but I haven't found any holes in it. I haven't read any uh, sensible people online who have found holes in it. Of course, the, you know, the right wing libertarians have you know, taken it apart, but not in any way that has any coherence to it. And so that was published in July 2018. And I think it was about September when um, Gail went on her retreat and her compatriot went on Jen Bendel's first <laughs> gathering. And she came back and she said, I have seen grown men in uncontrollable tears. I had no idea how bad things were. We have to listen to Gail. Wow. And and in Stroud that counted, and that and Extinction Rebellion basically took off from that point. Um, and so I think, you know, I listened to that, and I think we're being given help. I have a much longer story of how I got to Accidental Gods, but um, but I was being given help every step of the way, and that's the slightly longer story. Um, and so. My understanding is that we are not being given help in order to drive ourselves off the edge of a cliff slightly more efficiently than we otherwise might have done. <laughs> I could be wrong. And I, have, I have listened to someone who is in contact with a sh- the shamans of an Amazonian tribe that is not much in contact with the West. Mm. And their future seers, quite recently, cannot see beyond 2026 for any of us. Wow. And so either they're wrong, which of course they might be. If we, you know, January 2027 rolls around, um, my my friends and relatives will all laugh a lot. Or they're right, and if they're right, it's either because one of the absolute infants that we appear to like electing to rule us has pressed the wrong button, or we have made the phase shift to emergence into a different system that they cannot see. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the likelihood of that is, but it's the only one in which I have proper agency. Mm. And and given the process of the last year, I feel that I do have actual agency. So I am giving it everything I've got because what is there to lose? You know, it, it may be wrong. It may we may be going to drive ourselves off a cliff. We may be heading for extinction in a very short time frame. Mm. But if we're not, then it is down to those of us who can see a path a little bit forward to walk that path. And and everything that I get when I do my morning ceremony on the hill, when I go and sit out, when I do the meditation to other journeys, everything that I'm getting is, do this, keep going, we are here, do not stop. Um, and, you know, I, I, it's, it's remarkably clear, quite a lot of shamanic stuff when it comes through, you have to spend quite a while interpreting it. And it, mm. it did take a while to get to where we got, but, but now we're here, I'm, there's not a huge amount of deviation in what I'm hearing, and maybe it's a huge protection. It could be. I don't know. But but I think given where we are, given the science, given the likelihood of deep adaptation, then I want to be doing something that feels constructive. And and if that's self-delusion, then, then you know, so be it. One of the things that I'm um, thinking while you're speaking is, is around other themes that have come up in conversation when we talk about this, which is that if if we really grapple with the complexity of both our species and the interconnected systems that are likely to collapse if we continue on the course that we're on, mm. one of the biggest impacts, at least that I've encountered, that I find really difficult to counter, um, 
it's our emotional reaction and mm. um, however that shows up. So there's obviously there's the deep grief. There's also the reluctance. That's something that I grapple with a lot. Like sometimes I have pockets of deep grief in which I go into my music and that's something that I find connects me more deeply. And then and then I'm really reluctant to engage in any practice that takes me back to that place. And so I wonder, what are some of the things that you do to help keep yourself feeling and connected and open without dipping unsustainably into... Uh, despair yeah 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 so so the key word there is unsustainably because because denial and dissociation um for me and i'm not suggesting that's what you're doing but but it matters that we are where we are so Mm. okay so i have a longer answer to this which which takes us back to how i got to where i am because i think we'll fold it in so we know that i started off being a vet we know that then i wrote novels i'm still writing novels just a lot slower than I used to. Um, And the short, long version is that, so I sit with the fires on the solstice of, the winter solstice particularly, I sit out in the hill in the summer solstice. And the point of that is to review the past year and then to look forward into the fire and see what can I do in the coming 12 months. And solstice December 2018, I had just, so, backtrack a little. When I first wrote the Boudicca books, when the first one came out, I went off around the country, <clears throat> had a three-week book tour, because in those days people actually came out in the evenings to book tours. <laughs> Doesn't happen anymore. And I had a number of rules writing, because the, the Boudicca books arose out of my shamanic practice. And, and the rule for the first one, at least, was that everything in this book I have either done or seen done. Wow. And it had to, this has to be my rule. I had to bend it a bit for the second book, and it had to be things that I'd heard of you know, secondhand. But first book, done and seen done, and mostly the series of that. So I went around the country saying, this is who we were, this is who we could be, because that's what I believe to be true. And and I had been, my journeys then had said, you know, this is going to change the world. And actually it changed my world. Hmm. I don't know to what extent it changed the world. But anyway... Um, so I, this is who we were, this is who we could be, and people would come and get their books signed and they go, how do we do this? And I'd say, it's all in the book. Just read the book. You know, it, <laughs> you can read it, but it's there as a manual. If I go under a bus tomorrow, it's all in the book. <laughs> and at the end of three weeks, people were coming back. And I, yeah, I, I've already signed your book. What are you doing here? It was quite a long way from the place I started. And they're going, we want to know how to do this. I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, it's in the book. And they go, no, we've read the book. Hmm. And and we're still not, not quite getting this. <laughs> <laughs> So um, so I started teaching, and I thought I would teach maybe two or three courses and that would be it, and the interest would die. Mm. And 15 years later, I am teaching a minimum of 10 courses a year. Wow. Slightly fewer this year, because I have a mayor involved. <laughs> um, and so in the process of that teaching, I, there's a cycle, and it took my first group had finally got all the way around the cycle. And of the hundreds who started 15 years ago, nine people wow. got all the way around. And I and we, you know, they're extraordinary dreamers. The, the the difference, if we look back over the fifteen years, it's amazing. But I sat down in front of the fire, and basically, whatever we call what comes, we'll say the fire spoke. It's it's not, but that's a useful shorthand. What the fire said was, nine people in fifteen years is not going to cut it. Wow. And this was I hadn't read the deep adaptation the paper at this point, or I might have understood more. But you know, this is not good enough. You have to start teaching at scale. Um, and what I was shown was a vision of me in America with with really quite a large number of people 
And and I came out of that thought, but I don't fly, you know, I haven't fl- flown since the late nineties because mm. carbon. And anyway, I don't like flying. Carbon isn't really <laughs> useful. And and why would I go to the states? And how, how, what? That just doesn't make sense. Mm. And three days later, I got an email from someone which essentially said, "There's a lot of us. There's one of you. Which way would you like the flights to go?" Um, you know, a lot of us can come to you, or one of you can come to us. Mm, yeah. <laughs> oh. And if I hadn't done the, the journey, I, I'm sure I would have said, no, you know what, don't, just don't. But I had the journey, so, okay, I'm coming to the States. And then I have to think, what am I going to teach? Because I cannot teach the shamanic stuff. I am I am very, very safety conscious. Either shamanic work is something that you can learn in a weekend, or it's a very old, very powerful, astonishing process that takes a long time to learn. And th- these two are not compatible. And, and given that I believe the latter, or I frankly would not give my time to it, um, I, I am very conscious of the safety issues mm. and aspects. And so I am not going to teach groups of more than 15. It's not safe. And so that's not teaching us again. So I went on, but, but it was very clear. So I spent a lot, most of last year was finding out what can I teach at scale. And, and interwoven with this, there's a kind of story of three deaths. And the first death was a, a lactating hair that got me writing the Boudicca books, and the second death was a deer hind that got me to Schumacher, and the third death was in August of this year, was an owl. And I'm not going to go into the details, partly because I will cry on you, and partly because it is too long. <laughs> but um, in each case, the animal that died was the animal version of the guide with which I was working most strongly at the time. Oh. And, and in each case, it's like, why, why do you have to die? in order that I understand what you are saying, um, which is quite hard, really. And, you know, the whole grief and despair, each death matters. And I don't have a problem with death. Death is a wonderful transformation. I have a problem when it's a death that I could have avoided that otherwise doesn't seem necessary. Mm. Um, anyway, what the owl was teaching was the final piece of the puzzle um, of what we needed to do for accidental gods. And so... My understanding at the moment, that you clearly understand about complex systems, therefore obviously your listeners understand about complex systems, but the when we get emergence from a complex system, when it reaches that point of complexity that it breaks apart, either into the chaos and extinction or into the emergence, what emerges is absolutely unpredictable. I'm sorry, my cat. <laughs> I apologize. The noises are growing cats. Guys, um, in what emerges is absolutely unpredictable from the perspective of before. So the classical ones are eukaryotic organisms emerging from the prokaryotic soup, or the one that's easier for people to get their heads around is the butterfly emerging from the chrysalis. Mm. If you didn't know what was coming, you could not possibly predict from the DNA soup that is a chrysalis, the little imaginal cells that begin to clump together and finally make imaginal islands and finally make a butterfly, you would not predict that. Mm. So, so it is utterly unpredictable. If we are going to have emergence from the complex system that is us, then my understanding is that where we're heading is not something that we can predict. That's the point. If we could predict it, it's not emergence from a complex system. And we're back to Einstein saying, no problem is solved from the mindset that created it. So that, in a way, and I often get this with the shamanic stuff, I, I, you know, something comes through and I go, but why? And they go, why is not your problem? Hmm. You just have to do this in the best way that you can. 
And this feels like a kind of larger iteration of that, which is it's not up to me to work out where we're going. It's up to me to work out how we are going to get there. Mm. That's, that seems to be my job in this, is to find a structure where ordinary people, ordinary time poor, super stressed people with not very much bandwidth, watching a world falling apart around them, can find a pathway through that will get us to the point where, not where we can see where we're going, but where conscious evolution is the next iterative step. Mm. And we are in a position where we have the flexibility, because I think really important in all of this, this is what the owl taught, was that we need to get to a point where we have let go of everything that we believe to be true. Because, because no problem is solved from the mindset that created and, and we go into this thinking that we know how to fix it then we're screwed, and that's not up to us. So, so from my point of view, what I am trying to teach people is how to connect with the rest of the web of consciousness, and this depends on whether you believe in panpsychism or idealism or, or, or any of the maps of consciousness. And to be honest, I don't care what people believe unless it helps them get through because belief systems are not necessarily useful things and they all have boundaries. Um, so. We need to get to a point where we are connected, heart connected, taking our place in the way that only we can, because for all of our guilt and despair, and for me, the pain and the despair is absolutely riddled with guilt for simply being human. Yeah, yeah. And, and what I understand at the moment, and I'm not particularly brilliant at actually doing this, is I need to let go of that. Mm. It's not useful. I need to get to a point where... I am who I am in a clean, clear way, being the absolute best that I can possibly be in a way that is open to when I stand there and say, okay, I am here, I have shown up, I am what I am, where I am, who I am, in the clearest way that I can be, what do you want of me? Then I can respond to that answer with absolute flexibility in the moment. And we're not there yet. I think we need a critical mass of people able to do this. And I don't know what that critical mass is, and that's you know, what Accident of Gods is about, is trying to gather a critical mass of people who are even prepared to try this. Mm. Um, because at the moment, that's my understanding of that's the only way we'll get there. And it kind of cuts past your question of, we, you know, our complex system is going to fall apart. That, you know, that's deep adaptation and everything that falls from it. It is going to fall apart. It is in the process of falling apart. And that... If I let myself go down that route, I can become paralyzed quite fast with, with raw terror, actually. Um, you know, I get quite afraid of dying very slowly, for instance, because, yeah. because the bad guys have turned up. And, and I have conversations with people about, you know, what is faster than a rope and a beam in the barn, because I'm not sure I really like that option. Um, and, you know, those are conversations that, that I am still having, but I am also working on how can we make the transition because the help is there. And I just don't think, you know, I think if I were being, being given help two faster ways out than a rope on a beam in the barn, I would be following that path. But I'm not. I'm being given help to do something that feels very different. And I am prepared to go with that until the rope on the beam in the barn seems like the only possible option. So one of the things that you mentioned is this sense of... Um finding our way towards critical mass of people being in connection truly with themselves. Um, and the web of consciousness. That's the key thing. Yeah. And I think also the one of the things that comes up for me there is, is 
somehow finding a way to acknowledge all of the incoherences that we hold within us. So, for instance, um, you're talking about flights. I fly for my work. I don't enjoy flying for my work, but it's the way I make my living and the way I can do things like this, unless I radically transform everything, which I should probably do. <laughs> but I think... Yeah, no, and we can't. Well, yes, but there's the you know, Straw Bale House in the West of Wales. One of my students did do that for two years, and she's not in it anymore. And you know, if we're going to go down that route, if each of us has to mm. make the transition ourselves, then it's the Straw Bale House in the West of Wales, and it's off-grid. And it's mm. you know, this time of year, it's not a lot of fun. And and however many of you and I do that, the overwhelming majority of the population is not going to do that. So what is it then that gets this critical mass of people connected with this web enough to get some kind of change or at least some willingness to adapt? Because if we don't know what's coming, there has to be a resilience that we create a foundation for that enables us yeah. to embrace whatever does come. Okay, and so I think these are two separate branches, and I am involved locally in building local resilience networks. Mm. That's a kind of local activism, and even discussing with people what local resilience networks are. Mm. And that's part of the conference that I, I mentioned before we started, as we're trying to set up a conference, and this will be part of it. But that, okay, so for me, the conscious evolution is a spiritual project. And I want ordinary people in their ordinary lives to be engaging with this. And I've you know, broken it down as much as I can into manageable parts that people can do. And we've only been launched two weeks, but we had our first webinar, webinar last week. And, and we had, I had a couple of women get up ungodly early in Australia <laughs> in order to be on a webinar at 8 p.m. in UK time. And it was so heartening because my first intent was I want this to go around the world. And I thought, Okay, we're there. Yeah. <laughs> Take that box. Carry on. The rest of the boxes. We need. We need a lot more people. But um, so because I don't think it's the same. I think you know, one of the things that I don't know were you part of Extinction Rebellion in October, and you're sitting in the streets in Trafalgar, and people going past you going, "I bet you got here in a car." And you think, "Well, no, actually, I took the train." But that's not the point. <laughs> and you know, the the people who invented the car were riding on horses while they did it. The guy who invented the light bulb did it by candlelight. The change that we need to make does not require that we abandon. We, there is no point. You know, we all know. I, I don't fly because I don't like flying. I have you know, basic fundamentals of I think. I think it's a bit like not eating meat. Possibly if all of us did it, the world would be different. But but the unintended consequences of that, you know, I I'm working really hard locally on regenerative agriculture because mm. because monocultures are a very bad idea. And, yes. and if the world goes vegan, vegan monocultures will destroy our biodiversity far faster than anything mm. else. Um, they, we need to. It's not enough to tweak one part of the system. Yes. We need total systemic change. And and you know I I worked my socks off before the election, out on the streets canvassing, endeavouring to get a different political result. And we caught, mm. um, and I failed. And so, at this moment, the political route is not open to me. I, you know, anyone who thinks they've got influence on the current government, please use it. But it's not going in directions that seem to me terribly useful for where I think we need to go. Yeah. Um, and also, I'm discovering that my own internal mental and emotional health requires me not to be deeply involved in politics at the moment. <laughs> it, it just, it, I just end up in a little amygdaloid. 
mm. mousetrap running in circles screaming hysterically and it's not it's just not worth it so i'm endeavoring to just you know i'm i'm teaching people how to create different internal emotional states and part of my own practice of that is not engaging in the current emotion, political scene. Mm. So Joanna Macy, who I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with, an amazing Buddhist thinker who is deeply involved in the whole of bringing awareness of where we are in the world. And she calls this the great turning, which, which is a good starting point because it's better than the great despair or the great <laughs> catastrophe or any of the things that I would otherwise think it might be. And she has three pillars of the great turning. And the first is the holding actions, um, which is... Normal activism, direct action, getting out in the streets, saying absolutely no, you know, um, Naomi Klein's book, no is not enough. Mm. Um, all of the things that we do to make a difference now. And her second one is structural change, where we actively work to build new societal forms, new economies. You know, this is our local resilience networks. Um, and to use the Buckminster Fuller phrase, this is where we change something by building a new model that makes the old model obsolete. Mm. And that's that has to happen. But what I am looking at with Accidental Gods and with my understanding of conscious evolution is the third pillar, which is the shift in consciousness, where we do the inner spiritual and psychological transformation, um, where, and I'm reading off the internet now, um, <laughs> where we intentionally try and develop beyond our skin-encapsulated egos and open into wider spheres of identity with the earth, the cosmos, and the whole of humanity. So um, I have to say it's a very long time since I saw that, but it must have gone in at some level because that's exactly what I'm trying to do now is build this new relationship between ourselves and the web of consciousness such that. So, so I have four parts to what I think we're doing. Mm. The first one I'm calling reawakening interconnection because this is the key. I think this is we, we have this idea that just because we're people, because we have big neocortices, that it's up to us to work out how to fix this. Yeah. And and a lot of the, the corners of the internet devoted to conscious evolution are all, you know, if we meditate for another hundred hours or we philosophize even more deeply, or we put a nanochip in our brains to <laughs> help us, um, we will get our way through to conscious evolution. And and my understanding, and this is obviously grows out of my shamanic experience and, and my, my life, which revolves around my shamanic practice, is that's not our job. Our job is to be in connection, to be... So I was given... This sounds really pretentious. I have, a, I have an inner image. I first I was given a vision, but it's an inner image that arises a lot of the earth as we see it from space. Hmm. It, that, that beautiful picture, that amazing blue pearl floating mm. in the blackness of space. And around it is this hyper-complex web that's either the colour of the sun or the colour of the moon, depending on when I'm seeing this. And at every crossing point of this many, many, many crisscrossing web right around the world is a node of consciousness. And some of these are humans, and some of them are whales, and some of them are oak trees, and some of them are mountains. And... I don't know where consciousness begins and ends. And again, that's not, it's not really my job to think about that. It's my job to experience it. And my, my experience going out in the world is that if I can get myself to the right place where the boundaries drop, everything has consciousness and I feel part of that mesh. And so I am hoping that we can find ways to help people to reconnect with this because it's part of our heritage. Mm -hmm. this is, we're very few generations away from when we were forager hunters, when shamanic 
spirituality, however we define it, was the only spirituality of humanity. And for all of our evolution, and that's, you know, however many millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years, depending on who you listen to, that was our spiritual practice. And we lived in context with the earth. I read something a while ago, which on one level was horrifying, which was that in Australia, the, the First Nations, the Aboriginal peoples, were only redefined as not being native wildlife in the 1970s. Wow. So prior to the 1970s, they were defined as native wildlife, hmm. which, which on one level is just obscene. But actually, we were wildlife at mm. the point when we were fully connected. You know, it wasn't meant to be an honouring thing. But from the perspective of where I am now, that is actually a great honour to be part of the wild life of the world. I, am in, I teach courses called Rewilding Our Souls because we need to be reconnected. We need to learn how to live in context again, not in a way that goes back and tries to recreate some vanished past that we can know nothing about, but is real for us here and now. It feels authentic. It feels grounded. It has integrity for us in the moment as we are. So what are some of the practices that you find most helpful for those of us who are more frazzled and don't have a daily practice? Yeah. And <laughs> well, I have all the, you know, please come on, come on the internet, come on to Accidental Gods, it's all there. And you know, we, we've had to charge, this is all very difficult, but there is, a, there is a monthly fee. We set it at the price of a decent cup of coffee a week because we found that if people were not invested, they didn't engage. Mm. But if anybody listening out there wants to do this and the finance is an issue, just please, for goodness sake, mail me because that's completely flexible. However, so so I have created a set of visualizations. What I, I, I spent most of the year asking for help on this. What can we do? How can we make this work? And what I got was we start off, we connect with the elements. And of the elements, we start with water because water is intermittently ubiquitous, which is to say everybody touches it at some point in their day but not all the day. Hmm. So, so I have done the tap meditation, visualization, the shower visualization, the river, the ocean, the rain, whatever. I, I, I'm doing more. I was about to do more when we started to speak. <laughs> of, so once you've done it, so you, and I've started, because people don't even know how to build habits. I've gone into the neuroscience of how do we build habits. I've created a habits workbook. The very first thing is a three-second soundtrack Anyone can listen to a three-second soundtrack mm. um, because building habits is a skill in itself and we don't have it. We build habits that we're not thinking about. So building yeah. the habit of looking at Facebook, no problem at all. Building the habit of doing some kind of spiritual practice in the morning is really hard because most people start with 20 minutes. Yeah, And, and that's crazy. You know, I, I spent most of my life studying behavior training for dogs and horses and you don't start at the finished behavior. You break it down into tiny little bits that are doable. Mm. So I've created blogs on how habits, the neuroscience of how we build habits. I've created a workbook that talks people through. It. And obviously, if you don't want to follow the workbook, that's completely fine. But if you want to, we have the three-second track. And then we have the five-second track. And then we have the ten-second track. And then you can build up so that in a relatively short time, and you give yourself the reinforcement. You've looked at what is it that it takes to build a habit. That's probably a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, so that, you know, these are the this is the structure of habits. This is I want you to sit down and work out what is reinforcing for you. So if a square of chocolate is reinforcing for you, that's great. It wouldn't be for me because I hate chocolate. But you know, I've worked out what is reinforcing for me. How can I reinforce this new behavior that I want? What is a behavioral sequence? What is back training? 
all of the things that we know in behavioral science that doesn't seem to embed it across into building behaviors so that we can build the habit of listening to the visualization that helps you to connect to the water when you turn on the track. And then hopefully after a while when you've done this, and, and the whole point is not that you do the visualization and the rest of your day remains unchanged. The point is you do the visualization and go, oh, look, I can connect to the water as it comes out of the tap. Let me do that. And you won't remember every time. And my partner, bless her, little cotton socks, is, is going through and is doing this as my guinea pig. And she said the other day, so she'd listened to the shower, shower visualization, which you know, has a lot of stuff. And she stepped in, and in the time of going from sitting on her bed to getting into the shower, she'd gone into autopilot and halfway through the shower, she remembered. So she got out and started again <laughs> with, with the visualization. And it's fine. It's, you know, this is, this is not, I don't think we have a huge amount of time, but this is not a race that we need to build the foundations of connection. And, and after a while, it, we've got people, we've been going for two and a half weeks. We have people who are reporting, and I have to believe they're honest, actual genuine heart connections intermittently, not all the time, with water. Hmm. And then we'll go through the rest of the elements and then we'll gradually work out to the rest of the world. And it's slow. It's, you know, we have to build this up because it has to be real. It has, we, we have not got time anymore for the bullshit. And teaching shamanic practice, if people come with a lot of projections and a lot of the early work is letting go of the projections and getting to a part where we can actually be honest with ourselves and not have to make the Disney you know, sparkling unicorns or whatever. Um, and and this, we have not got time for the Disney unicorns. This has to be real. It takes as long as it takes. But I have endeavoured to break it down. And, and, and the thing that I need to say is that the connecting, because we need to get to a point where we can ask for help in a way that yields answers that are coherent, clear and constructive, and in a way that is not tainted by our egos, our self-judgments, our projections and our fears. You can tell I've said this before. <laughs> I will say it again. Along with that, we have to do the inner work, what I'm calling growing into coherence, because the two have to go together. Mm. Um, because we can't ask the questions that yield the coherent, clear and constructive answers if we're still full of self-judgment and ego and despair and denial and all of the things that, that are there. So there is also, there are the meditations to help people to find ways of doing that, the, you know, the close focus, the open focus, the heart based, the intent based. And we move on with those because if just meditating, we're going to get us here. I think enough people are doing mindfulness and things that we would be on the way and we're not. So I think we really, you know, we need the four pillars. I have four pillars instead of three. Um, and I think we need each of those. And the last one, which we will get to when I, when we have a critical mass of people who are competent to do this is the empty handed leap into the void where mm. we, let go of everything we believe to be true, except the ability to ask that question. But in a way that is fully connected, so that we are part of the web, of whatever we choose to call it, the web of consciousness, the web of life, the other than human world, the more than human world. And we can stand in our place, in our power, being the right person in the right place at the right time, and go, I am here, what do you need of me? And then act on the answer. And, and that is a ways off. But I think I really genuinely believe that it's worth working for and that we can do this. And, you know, seeing changes in people in, what is it, 14, 20 days, which, you know, a year from now, ask me again. <laughs> I come and play. Come and play with us. <laughs> do this. 
Because it doesn't, people are thinking it takes a long time. And the whole point of this is it's not, it's designed to be compatible with your average working life. Yeah. I think one of the things that um, I get asked a lot and that comes up in a lot of conversations is about the ways in which we go about bringing change that's going to be more regenerative in the world. And I think if you sort of take the angle of um, economists or people leading in green tech, etc., often they'll talk about the need for changing things at scale and changing things very rapidly and changing the infrastructure of systems that currently exist. It's, I mean, it's very interesting and I agree. I don't see a clear path moving forward in that direction that's going to be as rapid as we need it to be. But then I also hear the other theme, which is the one that you're pointing towards, which is this sense of um, whole ecosystems of people from the ground up changing their inner state, changing, therefore, the way that they relate to the, the living environment around them, the way they relate to themselves, and then choices arising that then are aligned with something deeper, something that's more connected. Um, and I wonder how you conceive of these two approaches, so kind of the grassroots, ground-up approach of people transforming both themselves, the community and the relationship with the living world, and the more high-level systemic influence, and what happens when, for instance, those structures are very reluctant to relinquish their grasp, so whether that's presidents and prime ministers mm. or the media or you know, financial institutions, the list goes on. What, what, what do you think about, about that dance? That's a really interesting question. So because I'm, before I step back from politics, I was quite interested in Dominic Cummings and his thinking, and I think we are about to see very rapid change. I think they are going to break everything apart. I think they are going for shock doctrine. It's just they're going for Steve Bannon's version of shock doctrine, mm. which is not the one that I would prefer. But the thing about complex systems is that you cannot predict the outcome. Mm. So um, I think they think they can predict the outcome. <laughs> and I think what happens when everything falls apart uh, I, is going to be very interesting. So I think yeah, we're back to Joanna Macy and her three pillars and this is the structural changes pillar um, the you know things probably do have to change very fast and I do we haven't even got a coherent narrative on our side yeah if you look at Bannon and anything that he said and even talking about it makes me feel toxic so we'll keep this very tight and very short but <laughs> they they did not bring their heads above the parapet until they had worked out, they being, let's call it, whatever we call the alt-right, is, is an easy short term for, for that grouping. They made an agreement to not bring their heads above the parapet in any form until they had worked out what they wanted and how they were going to get there. Hmm. And we don't have, we just have on, in, in whatever we choose to call our political grouping, a tendency to think that the trajectory of history is heading roughly in the right direction and all we have to do is watch it happen until very recently that was our default and we have no plan and i'm looking at a lot of separate people trying to create a lot of separate plans and i'm not seeing a huge amount of coherence and partly because when i listen so if you listen to someone like i don't know no eva harari the deep question that they get to is we cannot plan where we're going until we know what humanity is for. Huh. And because because the other you know, the alt right, I, I I'm even resisting the whole tribalism of this, but but there is a grouping of people who know exactly what they want. And what they want is a white supremacist patriarchal theocracy mm. that makes the handmaid's tale look like, you know, 
Twitter, mm. and they want that very badly, and and they have a lot of money behind it, and and they have a structure, and they know how they think they're going to get there, um, and I think this is you know a perfect sign of the old order falling apart, but um, but but that exists, and and we have you know until we know what we are here for, it's really hard to work out how we're going to get there, um, and I spent most of my time at college when I was at Schumacher doing the masters. Sitting with that question of what are we here for, um, because I, the very first um, term paper I did, we'd, we'd been taught all about Buddhist economics and, and all the various different forms of economics, and I thought, what does a shamanic economics look like? Because every <laughs> single one of these, even the ones that were presented to us as being quite shamanic, they were going out and they were saying, we need to build a dam across here for our economic structure, therefore we're going to ask the spirit of the, of the river if it's okay. Wow. And that made that just made my blood turn into vapor in my veins because I thought, no, 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 no. You go and you ask the river, what do we need to do? You don't say, we're going to put a dam across. Is that okay? That, that's <laughs> not the right way to be doing things. Guys. I couldn't find an economic model that, that was predicated on the question, what do we need to do, rather than we're doing this, how do we do it? Mm -mm. Um, and and I, did, I did the work that I did that was part of, part of the term paper. And I was doing the spirit walk that I thought was going to answer it. And my main guide kind of stepped out in front of me and said, you were asking completely the wrong question. Wow. Um, I, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what's the question? And he said, the question is, what are we here for? And until you can answer that, there is no point in looking at the rest. Yeah. Okay. And then I started listening to others and realized that I was quite late to that game. <laughs> um, and so... And so I've been asking that. And so for me, what I am here for at the moment is to facilitate conscious evolution, because I think what we can become, if we can take our place in the web of consciousness in a way that facilitates whatever it is that emerges from our complex system, will be so far beyond anything that we can imagine at the moment that we can't imagine it. And, and it will, and then a lot of the questions of, Tweaking the existing structures will become redundant. That's the point about emergence from complex systems. All of the questions that arose, all the questions of how do prokaryotic organisms survive in an increasingly oxygenated atmosphere which is toxic to them, cease to matter overnight when they join up and become eukaryotic organisms that metabolize oxygen. Mm. The old questions are no longer relevant. Um, and it may be that this is an escape and that this is my own form of denialism. I don't know, because I'm not seeing a lot of ways forward. I think Extinction Rebellion is extraordinary in its ability to model other possible ways of being. And I found October, much as I came away from it, pretty much with PTSD. And I was by far from being on the front line for most of it. Um, I nevertheless found extraordinary sense of of hope and awe and wonder mm. in you know, 5,000 people on Trafalgar Square self-organizing, or the police kick us out of St. James's Park, and within an hour we have self-organized groups to get us to Vauxhall Street Gardens, and and everybody is helping everybody else, and this is mm. how we could be. Mm. Even the police, you know, come, everybody was helping. And, and it was an extraordinary model of how humanity can be when we have a common goal and agreed ways of getting there that are not conflict-based. Yeah. No, that's the key thing. <laughs>
I said, yeah, how do we get beyond rivalrous, rivalrous behavior? And I think that's a really big thing of, and, and part of what I'm trying to do is to model that. It's one of the reasons I'm stepping out of the politics, partly it's too distressing, but partly also we have to start modeling non-rivalrous behavior. We have to, or we're finished. Hmm. Um, so, so I think a lot of what we need to do, rather than tweaking the actual structures, is to tweak ourselves. And then the structures will change. Because if we change the structures and don't change ourselves, they will just be iterations of what we already have. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you um, implicitly describe a sense of hope about what can be ahead of us. And um, and I'd like to bring that into the final question, because I'm realising we're already close to time. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. I talk too much. I'm no, sorry. you don't. That's that's exactly why I'm here is to listen to you. So this is perfect. You're, you're, this is a wonderful, rich Thank you. conversation. So please, this has been a pleasure. Um, but yes, when you talk, of course, I hear um, the pain with which, you know, we're, we're kind of charged if we're going to wake up to, to the gravity of the situation. But there's also what I hear in, in what you're saying. There's also a lot of hope in terms of a possibility of a way forward, of a change, of taking ourselves to that edge and then open heartedly jumping into the void as, as frightening and also as exciting as that sounds. And so my last question really to you is um, alongside a deeper exploration on accidental gods.life, which is your wonderful platform and other resources that people can find out. What one insight or advice would you give to anyone listening to help them reconnect right now? Go outside. Go out of your house into a place that is green, ideally not a monoculture, and, and as open-heartedly as you know how, which is as ever as good as we get, ask what do you need of me and see what happens. Uh, honestly, I, I think if, if everybody just did that, the world would be a different place. Okay, I'm going to do that too. <laughs> Yay, and then let me know, let me know. Because, yeah. because that's what we're doing in, in creating a community of people who are prepared to take that risk. You know, it, it feels flecky the first time you do it. Mm-hmm. But then if you feed back, then other people find the courage to do that too. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalina Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and you can join in the conversation with the hashtag Hive Podcast. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.